We're in Joshua 9 today. I'll read the, the first 14 verses for us if you'd like to follow along. Joshua 9, verse 1. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the great sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We're your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you, and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, Sion king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but now see how dry and moldy it is? And these wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are? And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Now, verse 1. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, let's just pause there, kind of set the stage. We think of kings as ruling large countries like England or France, but these kings ruled smaller areas, cities, and the territories that surrounded them. So imagine a king of Coldwater, and of Bronson, and of Quincy, and you'll have a better idea of what this was like. On the west side of the Jordan, in an area less than a quarter the size of the state of Indiana, there were Hittite kings, Amorite kings, Canaanite kings, Perizzite kings, 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 everywhere there were kings. Thus far, Israel had always faced one of these kingdoms at a time. First it was Sion, king of the Amorites, and then Og, who ruled over Bashan. Then it was Jericho and their king, then Ai. But now things have changed. Many of the other kings, though they distrusted each other and were in competition with each other, came together, this is verse 2, to make war against Joshua and Israel. Seeing what Israel had done To individual kingdoms, they decided to pool their resources and meet Israel as a unified front. But one of these people groups in these little kingdoms followed a radically different strategy. Look at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. This is a scam. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks, old wineskins, etc., and said, we've come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. 
Now we learn later in the chapter that the Gibeonites were ruled not by a king, but by a group of leaders, which is interesting. Perhaps this group of leaders was less concerned with maintaining power than a king might be. Or perhaps they were just more concerned about their people. Whatever the case, they believed in the reality and power of the God of Israel, and they didn't want to face Joshua in battle. But Israel was operating, remember we've talked about it again and again, under the ban, under the order to drive out or destroy all the peoples of the promised land, a fact that had not escaped the Gibeonites' attention. So they devised this elaborate scheme to trick Israel into thinking that they were from a distant country and not from the promised land at all. The Gibeonites spoke not only to Joshua, verse 6 tells us, but to the men of Israel. Now, it's possible that upon their arrival, they didn't know who the leader of Israel was or which one Joshua was. Or it may be that they were trying to influence as many people as possible. The men of Israel said to them, you might live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? And that's when the Gibeonites addressed Joshua directly. This is verse 8. We're your servants. They said to Joshua, but Joshua said, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, we come from this distant country because of the fame of the Lord, your God. For we've heard reports of all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sion, king of Heshbon, Ah, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtoreth. And our elders and all those living in our country said, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we're your servants, make a treaty with us. I suspect that the praise of verses 8 and 9, while it may reveal a true respect for God, was also intended to put Israel off their guard. And whether that was the intention or not, it had that effect. Look at verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, and then look at that next phrase, but did not inquire of the Lord. How often we get into trouble in exactly the same way. Some course of action commends itself to us. Sounds good. Maybe it flatters our pride. And it seems harmless enough. We presume that we have sufficient information and are smart enough to make a good decision. We probably aren't. So instead of inquiring of the Lord, we trust our instincts and we go with our first impression. Do you know what? We're probably not as well-informed or as smart as we think we are. In the book Future Babel, Dan Gardner questions our ability to accurately assess situations and predict future possibilities. And not just our ability, but our experts' ability. He cites the work of a scholar from University of Pennsylvania named Philip uh, Tetlick, who analyzed thousands of predictions from hundreds of people recognized as experts in their field over a period of 20 years. He came out with this gigantic book. According to Tetlock, as a group, the experts did little better and sometimes considerably worse than, and I'll quote, a dart-throwing chimpanzee. Let me give you some examples. In 1968, the president of Anaconda Copper Company predicted that his company would thrive for the next 500 years. Ten years later, after the emergence of fiber optics, Anaconda was out of business. Same year, Paul Ehrlich predicted he was a big guy in the whole uh, overpopulation thing. You remember, if you remember that time, everybody was talking about it, right? 
He predicted that overpopulation would produce the total collapse of the world's food supply. Since that time, the world's food supply has increased and not, not decreased and has increased dramatically. Now, so is population. And it should increase even more, the food supply. In 74, Ehrlich said, if I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. Well, I wonder what kind of odds you could have got that the queen would still be on the throne in 2013. <laughs> this is just a couple of years ago. Goldman Sachs, 2008. You remember everything the, right before the financial collapse. Goldman Sachs predicted that oil prices would surge to over $200 a barrel within six months. And the fact is, in that six months, oil prices changed dramatically. They dropped to $34 a barrel. Those are the experts. See, the reality is we can't see how things are going to turn out. We don't know the effect a present choice will have on the future. Like the one that the men of Israel made when the people of Gibeon came to them. There's a psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. He's also a Nobel Prize winning economist and um, an authority on human cognition. Bloomberg calls him one of the most influential people in the world on global finance. One of the smartest guys anywhere around. He said recently, talking about how people think, he said, we're blind about our own blindness. We're generally overconfident in our opinions and our impressions and judgments. And he said, people don't think very carefully. They're influenced by all sorts of superficial things in their decision-making, and they procrastinate, and they don't read the small print. Well, maybe Joshua and his people were influenced by all sorts of superficial things in their decision-making, like worn-out sandals and bags and moldy bread. Perhaps they didn't read the small print, but their basic problem was that they didn't consult the Lord. Verse 14, they sampled the provisions, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, verse 15. Then Joshua made a, peace, a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Treaty is the word often translated as covenant. If we don't understand covenant, we're going to have a hard time understanding the message of the Bible. Covenant is that important to the overall theme of the scriptures. Here the Israelites entered into covenant with the people of Gibeon. That means that terms were drawn up between the two parties. Each party swore to keep the terms of the covenant that applied to them at any cost. And the Israelites swore fealty to the covenant in the name of the Lord. Animal sacrifices were offered then as a symbolic way of saying, if we fail to keep our part of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to us. Then the parties, in this case the leaders of Israel and the representatives of Gibeon, ate a meal together ratifying the covenant. That was the process of covenant all around the ancient world. But three days later, Israel discovered that the Gibeonites were really their neighbors. They falsely stated their position. They had lied. The covenant was ratified under false pretenses. And when the people of Israel heard about it, they were angry. Look at verse 16. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard they were their neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out. And they're hot. And on the third day, they came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephra, Beroth, Kiriath-Jerim. 
But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel that entered in the covenant. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them. Even though the covenant had been ratified under false pretenses, it was still a covenant. The Israelites hadn't included any stipulation requiring honesty on the part of their covenant partners. So even though Gibeon was false, Israel must remain true to the covenant. God takes covenant seriously. And the leaders of Israel understood that. Lewis Smead says, if you have a ship, you'll not desert If you have people, you'll not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you're like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, he he writes, when a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He'll be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty and a sea of uncertainty. Now look, to understand Christianity, you must grasp the fact that the Lord is a promise-making, covenant-keeping God. He has bound himself by covenant to his people, that is, to his son and to the people who belong to him. And God will not go back on his promise. He has no uncertainty about the future. He has promised not just to us, but to his son, and he will fulfill his promise. We who have faith in Jesus are partners in covenant with God, in the new covenant. And as in any covenant, there are terms. You can read the terms in Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews chapter 8. And there is a meal, a covenant meal. We call it the Lord's Supper. And there is a sacrifice. The new covenant was ratified by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. God takes covenant seriously. That's very apparent in a follow-up story to the Gibeon covenant that is, we have here. It's found in 2 Samuel 21. By 2 Samuel 21, the centuries have turned over. Generations have passed away. Saul has become the very first king of Israel. He had grown up in the geographical region that later became the tribe of Benjamin, but that was home to Gibeon. And for some reason we don't know, he carried a grudge against the Gibeonites. So after he became king, when he came into power, he began a campaign of genocide against the Gibeonites. But even though... Many years, centuries, and multiple generations had passed. God had not forgotten covenant between Israel and Gibeon. And when Israel violated the covenant, he punished them for it. He sent three years of famine. When Saul's successor, King David, asked the Lord, Why are we going through this, Lord? He was told it was because Israel tried to annihilate the people of Gibeon. God does not forget covenant. And you, if you belong to his son, Jesus Christ, are in covenant with him. 
Joshua and the Israelites understood that God takes covenant seriously. And they knew that he wouldn't turn his eyes away were they to violate it, even though the Gibeonites had been false. So they reached a decision. This is verse 20. This is what we'll do to them. We'll let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You're now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers. Listen to the next phrase, for the house of my God. In other words, you're going to serve us in our worship and later on at the temple. Look down to verse 27. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that's what they are to this day. Now, by this time that that this was compiled and put together, the temple standing, and they're serving God, the Gibeonites. They were put to work helping Israel worship God. They made worshiping and serving God Easier for the Israelites, not more difficult. Now, go back in your mind to the ban that we've talked so much about. The command to drive out or destroy the inhabitants of the promised land. According to the ban, Israel must not make a treaty with the people occupying Canaan. The people who refused to acknowledge the Lord, who served other gods, they couldn't make a treaty with them because it would draw Israel away from the Lord. Anyone who refused to acknowledge God's exclusive rule must be cleared out of the promised land. Now, there's something similar in the promised life. We must not make peace with our sins. Sometimes we do. We excuse them, justify them, get tired of fighting against them, and we make a treaty with them. We mustn't do that with anything that draws us away from serving God. We must drive out and destroy everything that pulls us away from God or replaces our devotion to him with devotion to something else. Now, some of the things that draw us away from God may be morally neutral. They're not in themselves sinful, but they usurp God's rightful place in our lives. For example, we listen to certain music. It's not morally wrong, but it deadens our desire for God. The more we listen to it, the less... We think about him. If it's not morally wrong, but it deadens our desire for God, it must go. We engage in certain activities. I'll mention ones that I like so as not to step on toes. We play golf. We fish. We play music. We watch TV shows. These things aren't sinful in themselves, but if they draw us away from God, if they lessen our appetite for God and his word, or lure us into thinking more and more about them and less and less about God, they're under the ban. They need to go. How do I know if something in my life needs to go? Some people think anything we enjoy probably needs to go, and some religions even teach that. But that's certainly not a Christian idea. God has given this this vast range of pleasures to enjoy, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, St. Paul says. But even some of those might be detrimental to us and need to go. How do we know? I think the Gibeonites help us 
understand the answer to that question. If some commitment, relationship, or pleasure aids my worship of and service to God, then it can stay. It has a place in my life. And there are many such things that God has given us richly to enjoy. But if it causes me to care less for God and his kingdom, it falls under the ban. It must go. If you can identify things in your life, behaviors, relationships, commitments, possessions, that make devotion to God more difficult, then it's time to give that thing over to God. Now, there's one more thing to consider before we conclude today. Last week, we saw how this one man, Achan, brought trouble on all Israel. And in today's text, we see how disastrous his decision really was. Israel was poised to take sole possession of the promised land. Before they even crossed the Jordan, people were ready to give up. Rahab helped them in Jericho because she believed that Israel's God was the true God and that no one could stand against him. Again and again, we read that the hearts of Israel's enemies melted with fear. They defeated Sion. They defeated Og. They defeated Jericho. Had they gone next to Ai and done the same thing, the dozens of remaining kingdoms might have put out the welcome mat for them. We'll leave the door open for you when we go. But Achan's disobedience changed everything. It brought defeat at the hands of little Ai. And after that, the other kingdoms knew Israel was not invincible. Who knows what might have happened had Achan not sinned. Perhaps Ai would have fallen like the other kingdoms before them, and the kings around them would have given Abraham's land back without a fight. But because of what Achan did, countless lives were lost and years of battle were waged, and many children grew up fatherless, and even more grew up who never knew peace. And years later, when a king was seated on the throne and Israel's national status was recognized, the nation still suffered endless attacks from the very groups that were to have been removed from the land. It went on for generations and centuries. What might Achan have done had he, in the moment of temptation foreseen the consequences of his action. I imagine him ordered to do a sweep of the city after the Battle of Jericho, checking for any remaining hostile forces. And there in the shambles of some house or government building, he found the gold and silver and clothes, and the temptation assailed him. No one would ever know. After all, you've been through and the way they've treated you, you deserve these things. And he looked around to see if anyone was watching, and then it was done. The decision was made, as so often happens, without even hardly realizing it. He had taken action. But what might he have done had he known that taking those things would result in his death, in the death of his family? What if he had known that those things would lead to deaths in Israel and endless years of battle and pain? If he'd seen what he was getting into, he might have overcome the temptation. I read about a middle school in Oregon where some girls were putting on lipstick and then pressing their lips to the bathroom mirror to leave lip prints on the bathroom mirror. And they thought it was cool, and they were all doing it. But the principal 
didn't think it was so cool. So she called a bunch of girls into the bathroom and told them, look, this is a problem. This is a problem for our custodian who has to clean those mirrors every day. Do you have any idea how hard it is to get lipstick off those mirrors? And she had the custodian come in and she asked him to demonstrate. So he took this long-handled brush from his cart, dipped it into the toilet, and scrubbed the mirror. (laughs) After that, there were no more lip prints on the mirror. Our problem is that when we're tempted, we don't really see what we're going to get into. If we did, we wouldn't do it. We can't see what we're getting into, but someone we know can. And we can listen to what he has to say to us. That, in large part, is what it means to have faith. Sin carries a terrible price tag. Steve Farrar says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. That's one side of this. But there's another side. If when Achan was tempted to take the items under the ban, he had somehow grasped the truth, the unequivocal truth, that these things would not make him happy or secure. If he had seen that the happiness they offered was a lie, if he could have seen himself five years down the road having gained nothing but having lost his integrity, he probably wouldn't have taken them. We say to ourselves, if I only I can have this, this man, this woman, this job, this admiration, this possession, then I'll suffer any consequences. We say that because we've been duped. We believe, as did our first parents, that such things will fulfill us, secure us, or make us happy. But they always fail to deliver. In fact, the moment we yield to the temptation, the pleasure already begins to fade. We still get stuck with the delivery fee, but we don't get what we ordered. If you've been tempted to take a shortcut to happiness, if you've been trying to justify some behavior to yourself or to others, if you've got caught up in something, even something morally neutral, like politics or sports or hobbies, whatever, and your devotion to God has suffered for it, then learn the lesson of Achan. Don't justify your behavior. As I've gotten older, I've realized that whenever I'm justifying my attitudes or my behaviors, I've already lost. Don't justify your behavior. Instead, give those things to God. If it can help you in your service to him, he'll give it back to you. But whether he does or doesn't, he'll give himself to you. And that is by far the more important gift. Now let's pray. Lord, if there are things in our lives that are like the occupants of Canaan that draw us away from you, lead us to the worship of other gods, I pray that you will show us and help us to destroy them, not to make peace with them. Lord, if there are things in our lives that Help us in our worship of you, our service to you, that we can give thanksgiving for to you. 
Help us to acknowledge that. Be grateful for it. And give everything we are and have to you. For Jesus' sake, amen.